Hello there and welcome to episode 14 of the Or So She Says podcast. My name is Narissa Shea and I am a personal trainer, yoga instructor, nutritionist, sport and exercise psychology consultant, recently qualified level one Reiki practitioner and a professional Irish dancer. The list continues to grow of qualifications and I am finally feeling like I'm starting to find my feet as to how to merge them all together in order to best help people. It's been a long process, but we are getting there. So today I am very excited for this episode today. I was originally going to split this episode into two episodes because it is going to be quite long, but then I actually just decided they merge really, really well together because the first is discussing a lot of things with relation to mental toughness and how we can kind of analyze where we're at with it. And the second half of the podcast is then going to talk a little bit more about habit formation and how we can actually change our habits. Because if we can change our habits, we will ultimately change our mindset and change our lives. So I actually think they tie in really, really well together, which is why I decided let's just make another really long podcast. (laughs) Plus, it always seems to take me like weeks or potentially months to get around to recording an episode whenever I actually have time. So whenever I do feel like I have a little bit of time, I really want to pack as much as I possibly can into these episodes. The next thing I want to do is I want to ask you that if you are not already, if you could like and subscribe to the show and also give it a rating like I can't believe how many five-star ratings this show has on Spotify. I'm like, oh my God, I go on to like big podcasts that I listen to and I'm in shock. I'm like, whoa, I'm actually not even that far behind them in ratings and my ratings in relation to my views and stuff like that. It's, it's incredible engagement. So I just want to thank each and every one of you who listens to this podcast and enjoys this podcast. And I know there's people who listen to this religiously, but I actually don't know who's subscribed to the podcast. I know how many people are, but I actually don't know if you're one of the people who's subscribed. So if you ever want to reach out and uh, I'll give you a shout out, I'll be like, thank you for being a loyal fan and let me know. So without further ado, we are going to get into today's episode and we are going to talk about how to improve your mental strength with the four C's. And then we are going to talk about habit formation. I want to point something out from the get-go though, from today's episode. If you've listened to a lot of my episodes before, I tend to take a very, I would actually call it not a spiritual approach. I'd call it an ERISA approach. I tend to like to merge a lot of the science with a lot of the spiritual aspects that I found have helped me along the way. But I do want to forewarn you that today's episode is very science and psychological based because a lot of the concepts I'm discussing, especially with regards to the mental strength realm is very, very much heavily studied in sports psychology. So, wow, ma'am, you'd be so proud of me. I'm actually using my master's degree today, (laughs) years later. So firstly, we need to get really clear on what mindset really is. You are going to hear a couple of concepts throughout today that you'll have heard me discuss on podcasts. I have discussed them on posts on social media, and I've repeated them 
all over and over again. And it's not to be really annoying. It's genuinely to just hammer home some really important things that people need to understand about certain things. And the first one is mindset, because I don't know if you're like me, but I swear to God, if I see one more thing on TikTok and Instagram telling people your mindset is everything and you need to have a stronger mindset and mindset is key, but they don't give you any fucking tools as to how to actually develop your mindset. It's about as annoying as the amount of HelloFresh ads that I'm seeing on my feeds lately, which is why I actually just took the whole week off social media, which is actually ironically why I have time to record this podcast. It's great. (laughs) So let's get really clear on what mindset is, because mindset is such a buzzword these days. And I think it's really important that we understand what it actually is. So your mindset is a set of beliefs that shape how you make sense of the world and yourself. And it is deeply, deeply correlated with your subconscious mind. And it influences how you think, feel and behave in any given situation. And even though it is kind of set as to where you are in life at the moment, that does not mean that you cannot change your mindset. And I will outright attest to this over the past five years, I have completely changed my mindset. Now, I'm not going to go into it today. But if you really want to know the science into how you can change your mindset from actually like a brain standpoint, look up neuroplasticity. It is so fucking interesting. If I started talking about that today, though, this podcast would be three hours long. So I'm not going to get in there. But how our brains are wired. And when we start forming new habits and stuff like that genuinely changes your brain. Neuroplasticity is one of the coolest things I ever looked up and I highly recommend looking up neuroplasticity, look up Joe Dispenza. It's mental. And some of the studies that they're coming out with lately, scientific studies that are published in proper medical journals is insane. I'm actually just so excited that finally science is kind of proving a lot of the things that spirituality has been saying all along because we are so set into, oh, if it's not science, then I don't believe it. But ultimately, if you start going down the quantum physics rabbit hole, that's a whole other ballgame. Anyway, back to today. (laughs) There are two basic mindsets. So we have a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. So fixed mindset would be I'm either good at something or I'm not. And a growth mindset is more challenges help me to grow. Now, with that in mind, you don't necessarily only have one or the other. You can have a very fixed mindset with regards to some area of your life and a very growth mindset in others. So like say someone wants to pick up a new hobby and they're completely willing to be terrible at that hobby at the start. They start playing tennis and they've never played tennis and they're like, that's fine. I don't care that I'm crap at this. Like, I know I need to learn. So they have a very growth mindset in that area. But then in work, they get tasked with something they've never done before and they can't do it instantaneously and they start panicking going oh my god I'm obviously not able to do this I'm not good at this so they have a very fixed mindset and work and this works really either for or against people especially when it comes to diet and exercise if you have a terrible track record of yo-yo dieting and stuff like that you probably have a very fixed mindset with regards to diet and exercise And you probably have this belief in the back of your head that this isn't going to work because it hasn't worked up till now. So in this grind harder society that we live in, where we're told that mindset is everything. I've told you about them posts that 
kind of annoy me. But anyway, you're always told you need to have a strong mindset to face all of the challenges that life throws at you physically, mentally, emotionally. It makes sense to pay particular attention then to our mindset and specifically ways in which we can potentially improve it. Okay. So drum roll, please. Entering mental toughness. What is mental toughness? The academic definition for mental toughness is having the natural or developed psychological edge that enables you to generally cope better than your opponents with the many demands that sport places on a performer. Specifically, be more consistent and better than your opponents in remaining determined, focused, confident, and in control under pressure. Now, yes, that is very heavy. And yes, that is very sport-based, okay? But as I said, a lot of this research has been done on athletes because it makes sense to study athletes in a very competitive environment to determine what are the characteristics of successful athletes that make one person successful and one person not even though maybe they have the baseline talent so that's why a lot of this is actually founded in like sports psychology okay so me coming from a sports psychology background i can attest to the vast importance placed on mental toughness when working with elite athletes and performers because it really is the difference between someone succeeding in their desired sport and someone who does not but I want you to notice how the above definition states natural or developed. That's really important. You don't just have a strong mindset or not, okay? Mental strength is something one can learn, but like any skill, it takes practice and patience. So you're saying to me, Narissa, that's great studying about elite athletes and all their attributes, but what about in everyday life? What about normal people? Can mental toughness be something that your everyday gym goer or regular day-to-day -day life person could potentially benefit from? Absolutely. So here is another definition. Mental toughness is the ability to resist, manage, and overcome doubts, worries, concerns, and circumstances that prevent you from succeeding or excelling at a task or towards an objective or a performance outcome that you set out to achieve. So therefore, is this not an attribute everyone could benefit from in everyday life? I would argue yes, okay? Because many people struggle to achieve their goals in life, be it fitness goals, career goals, physique goals. Like I honestly could write a book on the myriad of reasons why people don't achieve their goals. And to name but a few things, I would say the things that I have noticed over the past three years of coaching are these things in particular. People who fall into a victim mentality bracket where they think the world is going against them and they have no control over their lives. They really, really struggle when things don't go their way and they think everything is happening to them and not around them. And what I will argue here is there is stuff happening to everyone and it is your ability to respond and not react to these things. If you fall into a victim mentality, you literally are just reacting to every single thing that's going on around you. And you cannot guarantee that you're going to have a good day every day. You have to be able to navigate the bad days. It's not happening to you. It's happening around you. Okay. The next thing is instant gratification. People who just cannot practice delayed gratification. They always seek out something that's going to make them feel good in the moment. And they're not thinking about the consequences down the line. Like if you're listening to this, chances are you're an adult. You have unconditional permission to eat, drink, do whatever you want within reason. 
but your actions have consequences. And if you are unable to resist the temptation of an immediate reward for something that may potentially make you feel better later on, you're constantly going to be riding the dopamine high, whether that's social media, whether that's emotionally and whatever it is. So instant gratification, you need firstly self-awareness as to what the thing is. And then you need to be able to create a bit of space between say it's a bad habit and you actually carrying it out and being like, right, instead of reaching for this instant gratification, what is the delayed gratification that I can do here in order to actually make me feel better in the future? Negative thinking, like some people are just really fucking negative. And I've realized that over the last few years, like there are some people that I would sit beside and I'm like, oh my God, they have not said one good thing. Like in the last hour I've been sitting here and I get that some people are genuinely just vibing at a bit of a lower level, but if you are stuck in a negative cycle in your brain, all I can say to you is the best way to try and get out of that is to try and realize that in order to create a world around you that you actually enjoy and that you embrace, you need to have a nice inner world because you're never going to have a nice outer world unless up here and in here is a better place to be. No amount of cars and houses and all of these things are going to make you happy if you're stuck in a negative thinking pattern in your brain. The other thing I will say is catastrophizing things. Like when something happens, everything goes tits up. It's the end of the world. I don't know what to do. Again, this kind of comes back to the victim mentality, though, where I will say when something happens, your ability to take a step back and be like, all right, okay, this has happened. I can't control it. What can I do? And what are the proactive steps I can take in order to make this a little bit better, essentially? And then perfectionism. I could write a book on perfectionism, but it's that all or nothing mentality. And it's the thing that keeps people constantly on the yo-yo diet and bandwagon because they cannot see the gray area in between. You don't need to be perfect all the time and it doesn't need to be a shit show all the time. If you can spend a lot of the time in the good part, some of the time in the shit show part and a good part of your time in between, you will get to where you need to go. But constantly going in between the two of these is never going to get you there either. You need to be able to see the gray area in between. But that's it for today. I don't want to dwell on all these things that I have noticed over the years are the things that impact people achieving their goals. I want to focus on something we can implement today in order to move people closer towards a goal. So developing mental toughness allows you to remain focused, confident and under control in times of pressure. And it allows you to cope better than others with the difficulty of potentially hard training, implementing new habits, competition, life, right? It also helps you to rebound from one of the hardest things to come back from, which is failure. However, hippie Narissa is going to drop something in here. I would argue that there is no such thing as failure because you only ever fail if you quit. With that in mind, let's get stuck into one of the biggest concepts in sports psychology, and it is something called the four C's. So in his book, Developing Mental Toughness, psychologist Peter Clock describes four important traits of mental toughness, which he calls the four C's. We have confidence, challenge, control, and commitment. So we're going to start off with challenge. And the question that you would pose with regards to challenge is, how much do you see challenge as an opportunity? 
So challenge is all about your ability to perceive the task you are presented with as an opportunity for gain or growth. And it's about how effective you are at looking for the positives, no matter what. And in order to grow strong mentally, you must face adversity head on. Embrace the suffering in order to come out of the other side stronger. And what he means by that is you can't keep shying away from tasks because you're afraid to fail them. The best and most successful people on this world are not successful because they never failed. They are successful because they kept trying. And every challenge that doesn't go your way, what did you learn from it, okay? Scientific studies have found that this perception is at the core of many elite athletes' mental toughness, including Olympian champions and mixed martial artists. They view stressors as an opportunity for growth, development, and mastery, actively taking part in challenging activities to help develop their ability to deal with adverse situations. They learn through training, effort, and work, gaining new skills, perspectives, better relationships, and better confidence. So therefore, my question is, when you are faced with a problem, setback, or failure, you must ask yourself, what can I learn from this experience in order to progress more towards my goal? Because mistakes are only mistakes if you don't learn from them. So the next C then we have is confidence. So the question we pose here is what is your level of self-belief? Confidence was identified as the key component and main strategy utilized by Olympic champions and MMA fighters and underpins the whole mental resilience model. Confidence comes in two forms. You have confidence in abilities and interpersonal confidence. So what about abilities, okay? Confidence in abilities is the belief that you possess the necessary skills to achieve your goals. It's so important because when you are confident, you think and act in a much more effective manner than when you are not confident. And the most confident and motivated individuals look to face problems straight on, such as competitions, training, and they are willing to take big risks as they are confident in their ability. Now, what I will tie this slightly into here is I recently recorded a podcast about this and a lecture, and I also talked about this at a live event, is when we discuss motivation, it's very important to understand self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is the belief that you can do something, okay? Motivation is your desire to do it. And we all rely on motivation, but actually what's more important is self-efficacy. When they talk about confidence and abilities here, it's really important to realize you're not going to get confident if you don't try hard things. It's not saying that you need to be confident to do everything immediately. You can grow your confidence, but the only way you're going to do that is by improving your self-efficacy. And how are you going to do that? You push yourself out of your comfort zone. You prove to yourself that you can take on more challenges because it's a cyclical thing. The more you push yourself out of your comfort zone, the more you prove to yourself you can do these things the more your confidence grows that you can do more. And that is how any successful person has ever done anything, built a business, got into great shape. They constantly had to keep proving to themselves that they could do it. But that always came with pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. You're never gonna grow in your comfort zone. The other type of confidence then is actually interpersonal. So this comes down to your level of assertiveness, okay? Not aggressiveness, assertiveness. I think people get these two mis mixed up and I know people who think they're very assertive, but actually they're just really aggressive. Like they're really aggressive with getting their point across when someone doesn't agree with them. And I'm like, that's not assertive. You shouldn't be left feeling undermined and attacked if someone is being assertive to you. 
unless you have serious people pleasing issues, in which case sometimes I get that. But if someone is being assertive, they're actually just expressing to you how they're feeling and trying to get their point across, but not in an aggressive way. So there is a difference and it's really important to realize that. High levels of interpersonal confidence mean that you are able to perform under pressure, voice your opinion when in a group, influence others and lead a team. And this is important in all areas of life. And I wholeheartedly believe that we need to approach health and fitness in a more holistic way. People doing well in their jobs and thriving in relationships probably find that their training is improved and vice versa. I always use this analogy. I'm like, we have our mind, our body and our soul. And I'm like, let's take these things apart and focus on what we can control. So when we say, what can we control about our bodies? Well, we can control the food that we consume to make us feel better. We can control our exercise. We can get out for fresh air, all of these things to look after our body. What can we do for our mind? We can be careful of what we're consuming, both online and in real life. The people you're spending your time with, what are you doing in your spare time? Are you scrolling on TikTok or are you reading books? Are you embarking on a self-development journey? I understand that not everyone was put on this planet to go down the spiritual path and go down to aim for enlightenment some people were put on this physical plane to be in this physical body and to just enjoy being human but that doesn't mean that you let your mind go to shit and you just do whatever you want in the moment like you still want to be developing your mindset okay and all of this then impacts your soul and these three things then impact your life so when you can pull the things apart and focus on what you can control within them realms then all of a sudden everything starts to flourish and okay and it usually spills into all different areas so improving your confidence in any area is probably going to improve your confidence in other areas okay so this brings us on then to commitment so the question we pose here is what is your ability to stick to tasks commitment is about the individual's ability to keep going no matter what obstacles they must face so it's about staying disciplined to the task i prefer to say committed okay but working towards the goal when you really do not want to because the truth is there's always going to be obstacles there's always going to be a reason to stop there's always going to be distractions there's always going to be something you'd rather do as well but you're not always going to have the motivation but you can always implement commitment okay I use commitment instead of discipline because I think discipline sounds very drill sergeanty and like you are forced to do this. If you approach things from a place of love as opposed to hate, discipline for me sounds like I have to do this because I hate myself and I hate my body. Whereas for me, commitment is like I'm doing this because I love my body and I want to look after myself. And how you speak to yourself matters. And it is why I choose my words carefully when I'm speaking online and when I'm speaking to clients because. How I speak to them matters, how they speak to themselves matters. And words like discipline and grind harder and you just don't want it enough and all this, that's been embedded in everyone for years. They don't need that anymore. It hasn't worked up till now. So the better you can become at practicing, as I said earlier, delayed gratification, asking yourself in any situation, what can I do now that my future self will thank me for? the better you will become at this. And each time you choose to carry out actions in line with your values and goals, you reaffirm yourself on the ability to do what needs to be done, which in turn increases your, what did we talk about before? Confidence. So then the last one we have here is control, okay? So 
I always say to people, though, it's really important to realize, let's focus on what we can control without getting overly stressed about what's not within our control. However, this kind of ties back to the victim mentality mindset. The question we pose here is how much do you believe that you control your destiny? So control is divided into two subcomponents. The first is life control, which is the extent to which we believe we are in control of what happens to us. And the second is emotional control. So it's our ability to control our anxieties, frustrations, anger, and other emotional states. Emotions aren't a bad thing. Emotions are guideposts. And when people feel anxious or they feel depressed or they feel these feelings that they will label as bad feelings, we've gone so the other way that people are terrified to feel these feelings now. It's completely normal for every single person on this planet to feel anxious. But now we've labeled when people feel anxious as anxiety. And now we've given them a label. And what did I just say about the things you say to yourself? There's a big difference between saying, I have anxiety or I feel anxious. I have depression. I feel depressed. I am fat. I feel fat. There's a lot of power behind them words. So like, when it comes to emotional states and stuff like that, realizing that a lot of the time your emotions are just guideposts and telling you what's right and what's wrong. And when you're good at emotional regulation, which I highly recommend everyone start finding tools in the toolbox to regulate their emotions, especially in these high stress environments, you start to realize that emotions are always going to come up no matter how much you self-regulate. But then you start to listen to them and you start not being afraid of them. If you're feeling anxious, you start to question it. You're like, why am I feeling anxious? There must be something down here that my body's trying to tell me. Your body's very smart. And unless it's coming from a place of deep, deep trauma, a lot of the time when you're triggered and stuff like that, it's kind of just signposting to you either something that's not right or something that needs to be healed. Okay. So firstly, let's talk about life control. Do we inherently believe that we shape our own future or are we victims of circumstance? Again, comes back. This happened to me. This happened to me. This happened to me. Yeah, but how did you react to it? Now, I am a firm believer in the law of attraction with regards to when you're in a good mood, good things tend to happen, good vibes, all this stuff. So you can imagine if you're a very negative person and shit keeps happening to you, you will start to believe that the world is against you. But you are essentially attracting that energy to you. I hate to say it, okay? But the thing we need to realize is we can take control to our response to things as well. Because if you're constantly giving away your power to external circumstances, of course you're going to feel like you have no control over your life, okay? So from David Goggins' Accountability Mayor to Buddhist Noble Eightfold Path, it's about believing we can make a difference and take affirmative action to control our life's path. You cannot control your circumstances, but you can control your reaction. And it is important to focus on what you can control and to take responsibility. Every external event in your life that you don't control offers you an area you can control, and that is your response. It's not the events themselves that make us unhappy, but our interpretation of those events. So take responsibility and choose no longer to give outside events such power on you. So then we come on to emotional control and I've touched on this a little bit, but strong emotions and suffering is referred to by the Buddhists as dukkha, right? So the whole Buddhist philosophy is based on controlling your emotions in order to control your suffering. 
Now, this is not to say you avoid emotions. As I said, it's quite the opposite. It's about embracing your emotions, controlling them and redirecting them for your own good rather than letting them work against you. Because emotions are powerful influences on our mentality, motivation and actions. So realize that just like thoughts, and we learn this meditation, your emotions pass over time. And we are not our emotions, nor are we our thoughts. We are the observers of them. And what I like to think of is, I used to try so hard to stop this internal narrative in my head that just was constant. And I talked about this in the mental health podcast. Like when I was younger, before I started getting into like meditation and stuff like that, it was a constant narrative in my head and it would not stop. And it was draining and I overthought everything. And then in the last couple of months and well, I suppose over the last few years, the more I've been getting into meditation and being able to notice the gaps in my thoughts, the thoughts have slowed down a little bit, but honestly, the thoughts that pop into my head most of the time now, they're just ideas for work and stuff like that. So when I feel like I'm having an internal narrative these days, it's like I'm talking to a mate and I'm like, oh yeah, that is actually a really good idea. Or I'll get an idea from a dream or something like that. And I'll be like, oh my God, I literally got the idea for this podcast from a dream two nights ago. So I think it's really about realizing that we can make our mind a really, really terrible place to be or quite a nice place to be dependent on the action that we're taking. Okay. But when it comes back to actually emotions, okay. Yes, they are very, very powerful and they really heavily influence our mentality motivation. Okay. But the more you can realize, especially when it comes to like emotional eating and stuff like that, that emotions do pass. I always love the analogy of the wave okay as thoughts as emotions anything yes it's going to spike and it's going to feel really really difficult but it will eventually come down and my favorite thing to say to myself when i'm feeling really anxious and stuff is to say this too shall pass this too shall pass okay so thanks to 30 years of work by peter clock and loads of people's names that i can't pronounce <laughs> i'll just leave it there um we have actually got a reliable way of measuring mental toughness and it's actually readily available to you. So there are questionnaires you can fill out online to determine your scores in various areas of mental toughness and it is called the MTQ plus. So the mental toughness questionnaire and it measures your resilience and ability to cope with pressure and change around the scales of challenge, control, commitment and confidence. It's online, well validated, and it only actually takes about 15 minutes to complete. So what I would actually suggest is before we get on to the next part of this podcast, which is how we can actually develop our habits, which is going to improve our mental toughness, see where you're at on this scale first and figure out the areas that you really need developing in. Because you might be really, really high scoring in some areas. So there's no point in implementing habits that are just going to improve the areas you're already good at. You need to look at the areas you're not so good at and figure out the habits you need to implement in order to get them to the higher level, okay? So being stronger, fitter, faster, leaner, outperforming others, a lot of it, it does start with the mind. Yes, there is a natural inclination that people have more natural born talent when it comes to certain things, but usually the difference between people who do really, really well in things and people who just give up. And I've seen this, over the years in dance and I've seen people do better because they were more committed and more dedicated and more 
mentally tough than those with natural talent who were just relying on natural talent. And then they gave up when it got hard because they were just relying on natural talent. So it's important to realize that your mind gives up before your body does pretty much a lot of the time. Okay. So you need to kind of develop these four C's and notice how I say develop and not just innately be born with these being really, really good strengths. Okay. Like it's like any skill in life. Mental toughness takes time and patience to acquire. It does not just appear overnight. So people do not expect to deadlift two times their body weight overnight when it comes to just starting in the gym. Okay. But when it comes to facets of the mind and it's working, people often get frustrated when they don't notice improvements immediately. And I think what annoys people is it's very hard to have tangible targets when it comes to mindset, meditation, all of these things with physical improvements. You can see it. Your measurements might come down. You're lifting a heavier weight. You're able to run a longer distance. These are very tangible and we love this as humans we love tangible targets oh i was able to do 5k now i'm able to do 6k but when it comes to the mind and meditation and stuff people can't understand how to gauge whether they've gotten better at it for want of a better word and i would argue that when it comes to meditation no matter how long you're meditating there will be days where you have a glorious meditation and you stop the thoughts for quite a while and it's just magical and other days your brain is like and that's life because that's your energy on that day and that's fine. But my take home advice here is firstly, complete the questionnaire and see where you measure up on the scale because what gets measured gets managed and then sit down with yourself and decide on your goals and how you want to achieve them. And then get clear on your values, get clear on your why. And then we're going to talk about habits because ultimately I talked about this on the last podcast, we can break goals down into outcome goal, performance goals and process goals, right? Outcome goal is what you actually want to achieve. But in order to get to there, if you have not nailed down your process goals, which is how you are actually going to do them, you're never going to get to your outcome goal. And what I will say here is yes, an element of trusting in the universe is very important, but you can't just write it down, hope for the best and not do anything because life doesn't work like that. Not in this 3D world, I'm afraid. <laughs> you do need to do something towards it. So the best way to nail down your process goals is to actually change your habits, okay? So I am gonna reference two books now throughout this next section, which are probably the most notable books on habit in this day and age. So firstly, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And um, actually, by the way, his weekly emails are amazing. I highly recommend you subscribe to them. And Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit. So I think everyone went through this buzz over COVID of reading Atomic Habits and they're like, wow, this is amazing. But not a lot of people actually took a step back and implemented it. And if they did, then I would rather see people talk about the step-by-step -step summary of how they actually implemented the habits instead of just constantly referencing the book. Because that's all I see online is people going, oh, change my life with atomic habits. Habits are great. Habits are amazing. I'm like, but tell people how. What were the exact habits that you changed? Because telling people to change their habits is just like telling people, change your life. <laughs> people are like, but how? Where do I fucking start? <laughs> is mainly the question. 
So Atomic Habits by James Clear is a comprehensive guide to building and sustaining positive habits while breaking harmful ones. So I'm going to give you a brief summary of the main points. And then I'm going to talk you through a real life example of how you can actually implement this into your life. So the main points are, firstly, the power of atomic habits. So Clear emphasizes that tiny changes or atomic habits can lead to remarkable results over time. And these small adjustments compound to produce significant outcomes. And I would argue that any of my clients who have been super successful on my program, everything became a habit for them to the point where one day they were like, wait, I've just achieved my goals. And I actually didn't even realize it because all I was doing was focusing on the process goals and the habits I was implementing every day. But all of a sudden it became a habit. I didn't have to think about it anymore. And now I'm at my goals and I didn't even realize I'm like, boom, mic drop, lifestyle change, not diet and exercise program. (laughs) Then he talks about the four laws of behavior change. So he introduces four laws to create effective habits. So first thing you need to make it obvious, you need to make it attractive, make it easy and make it satisfying. And conversely, to break bad habits, you should make them invisible, unattractive, difficult and unsatisfying. Then he talks about the cue craving response and reward, which I'm actually going to talk about a little bit at the end, because this is similar to Charles Duhigg's book when he talks about the habit loop. Okay. So clear discusses the importance of cues, triggers, cravings, which lead to responses and ultimately rewards. So understanding this cycle helps in both forming and breaking habits. So another thing he talks about, which I actually love, this is probably one of my favorite things from the book is he talks about habit stacking. So he suggests attaching new habits to existing ones, which makes them more likely to stick. And this method actually leverages established routines to create a seamless transition into new behaviors. So what I would say here is find a habit that you do already and add something to it. And that way it becomes a lot easier. So say you want to get into journaling in the morning and you already have a cup of coffee in the morning, then you add your journaling to the cup of coffee and already it will become habitual a lot quicker because you're doing something that is already a habit but now you're implementing something else and you can layer the habits on top of that then environment design i always argue this to my clients especially my clients who train at home there's nothing wrong with training at home but i genuinely feel environment does play a massive role in people's habits so i sometimes think when you're trying to work out in your room or in the sitting room it can be very tempting to just sit on the couch. Like I remember this during COVID, I used to have a a part in our hall in the city center. Luckily we had no neighbors on the top floor. And I used to go and train out there because I couldn't train in the sitting room because I just, my brain associated that with chilling. So I really, really had to have this different environment. So that's why I think going to the gym and doing your training in the gym works really, really well because you're in the right environment to carry out the activity that you're looking for. So a way of dealing with this, if you did have to train at home is have a particular, or getting into meditation is another thing. Have a particular corner in a particular room that you don't really use. Have your meditation cushion there or have your weights or whatever there and have that as the designated area that you train, okay? That would really, really help. You need to create an environment that's conducive to desired habits and it is crucial. So he he actually emphasizes the impact of surroundings on behavior and suggests making small changes to encourage positive habits and discourage negative ones. So he talks about a two minute rule. I sometimes tell people a 10 minute rule when it comes to exercise, 
But he talks about breaking down habits into manageable tasks that we can do in less than two minutes, okay? So you start small, you achieve them, build momentum, and then it makes habit formation easier. I always say to people, tell yourself you're going to work out for 10 minutes. If you don't want to do it after that, then just stop. Give yourself unconditional permission to stop. What often happens is when you tell yourself you're only going to do something for five or 10 minutes, you tend to complete it because the hardest part is usually starting. So identify based habits. So he argues that lasting change occurs when habits become part of one's identity. So by focusing on who one wishes to become rather than one that wishes to achieve certain things, then habits become deeply ingrained because it becomes part of who you are, okay? Then you have the plateau of latent potentials. So this emphasizes the importance of persistence, even when results seem stagnant. So it often appears that things will plateau a little bit just before a massive breakthrough and consistency is the key to unlocking latent potential. And I often find this with things, whether it's training, whether it's life, whether it's anything, I feel like I'm going through a bit of a period of this at the moment. It's not that I'm plateauing, it's that I'm doing a million different things, but I'm not seeing the fruits of my labor with them at the moment, but I am still going because I know it's gonna pay off in the end. But this comes back to mental strength and mental toughness. The belief that even though I might not be seeing the results of something I'm doing at the moment, I'm still working hard at it behind the scenes because I know it will pay off. But you have to have that belief that it will pay off in the end because it will sometimes feel like you're going through a plateau and you're not getting anywhere with it. So then he talks again about habits and beliefs. So he explores the relationships between habits and beliefs and highlights that change often begins with a shift in mindset. You need to challenge the limiting beliefs that you have and adopt, like what I talked about earlier, a growth-oriented mindset. So individuals can cultivate habits then aligned with their aspirations. But one of the first things I would say, and I say it all the time before goal setting, you need to get clear on what your values are and get really, really clear. Um, I talk all about values, all about goal setting, all about motivation in episode 12. So I highly recommend listening to that if you haven't already. Then he talks about actually habit tracking and reviewing. So monitoring your progress and reflecting on behavior are essential for sustaining habits. So he advocates for tracking habits and periodically reviewing performance to identify areas for improvement. So I always say to my clients, what gets measured gets managed. But I don't really care if a client doesn't want to use measurements and they don't want to use weight, but we need to use something to measure what we're, whether what we're doing is working. So if a client has a fat loss goal, it makes sense to use measurements because I'm like, well, if your measurements are going down, then you are losing fat if that's their goal. If a client comes to me and tells me they want to stop emotional eating and stop um reacting worse to situations they want to stop throwing in the towel whenever things get difficult then measurements don't really matter for them i'm like okay well we measure your success by the amount of times that you have actually gone to emotionally over the past few weeks and if it is lower than when we started then what we're doing is working so what you're measuring needs to line up to what your goal is and there's no point in measuring things that have absolutely nothing to do with your goal, which I think a lot of, no offense, personal trainers and stuff will do. They'll just get everyone to do measurements, weight, everything. But that person might have came to them saying, I just want to actually learn how to not eat like a dick and actually know how to train properly. They never said anything about weight loss. So 
why is it important then to use measurements? And I always pull my clients up on this. I always say to them, well, because I had a client before and their measurements went down. And I actually was like, wait, like originally you didn't have this as a goal. So I was like, do we need to use this? And she was like, oh, no, no, no. I do actually want to drop a bit of body fat, but I really want to focus on nailing down my nutrition and getting better in the gym. But I do actually want to lose a bit of body fat. I was like, okay, well then, yeah, let's keep using the measurements, right? But otherwise, if that wasn't a goal, and she was like, no, well, then I'd be like, why? We don't need to do your measurements because then you're tracking something that was not your goal in the first place. We need to track whether you are actually improving in the gym. So it's about getting really clear on, if you're tracking your habits, is it in line with your goal? So he does provide like practical strategies and insights to help readers develop lasting habits and achieve personal transformation. Essentially, if you understand the science behind behavior change, then implementing his actionable advice can really, really help people cultivate habits that actually align with their goals and lead to long-term change. So how would this look like in real life though? Okay, we're gonna consider this person called Alex who wants to improve their diet and exercise habits using the principles outlined above. So what do they need to do? They need to make it obvious. So Alex decides to place a bowl of fresh fruit on the kitchen counter as a visible cue to eat healthier snacks instead of reaching for more sugary snacks, more processed food, things like that. I always, always say there's no good and bad food, but if you are trying to change your eating habits, then putting fruit balls and stuff out to actually psychologically cue you to reach for them as opposed to other things is massively going to help. Make it attractive. So Alex subscribes to a meal delivery service that offers delicious and nutritious meals, making healthy eating more appealing and in this day and age, hella convenient, which is what everyone wants. So then they're going to make it really easy. So Alex preps healthy meals in advance on Sundays, ensuring that nutritious options are readily available throughout the week, making it so much easier to stick to that plan throughout the week. He's then gonna make it satisfying. So after each healthy meal, Alex takes a moment to savor the flavors and acknowledge feeling nourished and energized and reinforcing the satisfaction of actually eating well and fueling his body in a way that's gonna nourish him. Then what do we think about maybe habit stacking here. So Alex then decides to incorporate a short walk after dinner, sticking it onto the existing routine of clearing the dinner table. And this creates a new habit loop of clearing the table followed by a walk. So what about environmental design? So he removes unhealthy snacks from the pantry and replaces them with nutritious options, ensuring that the environment supports his healthy eating habits. What if we implement the two minute rule? He commits to performing two minutes of bodyweight exercises every morning while he's waiting for the kettle to boil, making exercise a manageable and non-intimidating task to start the day. And identity-based habits. He reframes his self-image by adopting the identity of someone who prioritizes health and fitness, which motivates him to make choices aligned with this identity, which is really important. So what about then the plateau of latent potential? Even when progress is slow, Alex remains consistent in his efforts, trusting that small improvements will compound over time to yield significant results. And the things don't happen overnight. You're not where you are today from what you did yesterday. You're the accumulation of all of your decisions you've done up to now, okay? So habit tracking and review. Alex uses a habit tracking app to monitor their dietary choices and exercise routines 
regularly reviewing his progress to identify areas for improvement and celebrate successes, which is really, really important, okay? So gradually, you can see that this would change someone's diet and exercise habits, but it's not overly daunting. It's not scary. It's not too much. They're not going to burn out in a week by doing this. It's small, sustainable changes and adding on to them whenever you can. So the other book we're going to touch on is The Power of Habit by Charles Dewing. So there's some really, really interesting experiments in this book where he actually discusses areas of the brain related to habit, especially with regards to people who suffered chronic memory loss, but were still able to form habits, which is really, really interesting. So he talks about the habit loop, okay? So he introduces the habit loop, which consists of a cue, a routine, and a reward. So cues trigger habitual behavior. Routines are the actions themselves, and rewards reinforce the habit loop. Advertising uses this all of the fucking time. It's actually scary when you realize that advertising is literally based off of this, okay? Um, so the golden rule of habit change, he emphasized that while habits cannot be eradicated, that they can be replaced. So to change a habit, identify the cue and the reward, and then change the routine while keeping the cue and reward consistent. So a really good example of this, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, is if you have a certain cue that causes a certain response, instead of trying to change the cue, change your response to the cue. So instead of, oh my God, I'm really bored, I'm gonna reach for the snacks. And that's usually when I go to the snacks, notice yourself being really bored and wanting to go to the snacks and tell yourself you have to do 10 push-ups. And then if the reward is the snacks, you can still have snacks, but maybe your choice in snacks might change because you did 10 push-ups. Um, so then we have the role of keystone habits. So certain habits known as keystone habits have a disproportionate impact on other areas of life. So changing keystone habits can lead to widespread positive change. So small wins and the power of momentum. Again, like what Claire said, celebrating small victories creates momentum for further progress, reinforcing positive habits and motivating continued effort, okay? Celebrate everything. That's what I always say. So the influence of belief then. Belief, again, we're coming back to the same things we talked about in the mindset section, but it is important. Belief in the ability to change is a critical factor in habit formation. So by cultivating a growth mindset and believing in one's capacity for change, individuals can overcome obstacles and achieve lasting transformation. Coming back to that thing again, and you're going to say, but what if I have shit self-belief? I'm like, well, you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone and start proving to yourself that you can do more. That's the only way you're going to get more self-belief. So if I wanted to apply these principles to someone trying to change their diet and exercise, what would this look like? So we're going to talk about Sarah this time. So we're going to identify the habit loop. So the cue is that you feel stressed or bored in the evening, and this triggers Sarah's desire to mindlessly snack, okay? The routine is usually that Sarah typically reaches for sugary snacks or processed food. The reward is temporary relief from stress or boredom and usually followed by feelings of guilt. Now, I'm not going to get too into emotional eating. That's a whole psychological area and a podcast for another day, but we're going to keep things really simple this time and presume that it's not emotional eating, it's just that she's bored. So then we're talking about changing the routine. So instead of reaching for the snack, she decides to go for a walk or engage in a brief stretching routine whenever she feels the urge to mindlessly snack. 
and then maintaining consistent rewards. So Sarah ensures that the new routines are satisfying by acknowledging the stress relief and relaxation she feels after going for a walk or stretching. So she gets that stress relief from something else. So implementing keystone habits, she identifies exercise as a keystone habit that can positively influence her eating habits. So by prioritizing regular exercise, she finds herself naturally gravitating towards healthier food choices to support her fitness goals. And then she celebrates the small wins. She celebrates each successful day of sticking to her new habits, whether it's resisting the urge to mindlessly snack or completing a workout session, these small victories reinforce the belief that she can do it and gives her motivation to continue. So as we conclude today's episode, it is evident that understanding the science behind habit formation is key to making lasting changes in our lives. So whether it's adopting healthier eating habits, establishing a consistent exercise routine, breaking free from harmful behaviors, principles outlined in Atomic Habits and the power of habit are invaluable, really. And they contain actionable strategies, which is great. And also what I would say is, it's really important to recognize that what we discussed in the first half of this plays a massive impact in how we approach habit formation. So I think all of these habit hacks, for want of a better word, are great. But unless you understand the areas that you are lacking, in that mental toughness model, you don't know the habits you need to implement because you'll just keep implementing habits and maybe that's not the area you actually need to work on, okay? Because we love doing more of the things we're really good at. We don't actually like implementing the things that we're bad at. So, and they're the things we actually need to do, okay? So we've explored the habit loop, importance of identifying cues and rewards and the role of belief and small wins in driving behavior change. By levering keystone habits, celebrating small victories and maintaining consistency, we can gradually reshape our habits and ultimately transform our lives for the better. What's really important to remember though is change doesn't happen overnight. It is a gradual process and I am saying it till the cows come home, but it is consistency over time, over perfection. Any day, imperfect action trumps perfect inaction every damn day. And you need to switch from the mindset of all or nothing to always something. But with the dedication, the right tools at our disposal, we can break free from these old patterns and cultivate habits that align with our goals and aspirations. Okay. So what I'll finish on here is coming back to what I said at the start. Why does all of this work? It all works because when you start implementing these new habits and these new principles that we've talked about throughout, you're creating new neural pathways in your brain, which is resulting in neuroplasticity. So you are changing your fucking brain when you change your habits. And what will all of this do? Change your life. So it's fair to say that will changing your habits and your mindset change your life? Absolutely. I will park it there because I think this is a long enough episode. But thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you made it to the end, kudos, fair play. There was a lot of heavy science in there today. And as I said at the start, I really, really appreciate you liking the show, subscribing to the show wherever you're listening to it. Share it with your friends. Share it on social media. I really, really, really appreciate when things are shared on social media. Just don't forget to tag me or else I don't know you've actually shared it. Um, It really goes a long way in helping me spread what I consider a very important message. And with all the competition online, it's very, very hard to spread that message 
you might think, oh, I only have like a couple of followers. Like if I share, it won't do anything. I have got more traction and more questions off the back of people sharing my stuff because then their friends see it than I ever have with just posting my own stuff. So you have no idea how much that helps. Plus, sometimes I just want to pack it all in and go and live in a yurt and not do any of this anymore because technology, I feel, <laughs> is draining the shit out of me sometimes. But I do really, really love these podcasts. I really enjoy recording podcasts. And I hope to be recording a lot more podcasts in the next coming months because I've decided I want to put more energy into podcasts and less energy into social media. And I think that will benefit everyone. So with that in mind, once again, I ask you share, rate, subscribe. And if you have any questions, my DMs are always open or you can comment underneath this podcast in the Q&A. I hope you have a fantastic day. I hope what I said helped and go slay your habits, slay your mindset and slay your life.